You are listening to a message that was given at Living Word Chapel, Oracle, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you and enrich your life. For more information, visit lwcoracle.org. Good morning, folks. It's a lovely day on, this, on the northern slope of Mount Lemmon. Yes. Um, behind every man, great or not, is a woman who rolls her eyes. <laughs> How many women were nodding? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a less dangerous way to say Amen. Well, we do. We have three kids, and, and they were spread across the country, Southern California, Denver, and Norfolk, Virginia. But our Norfolk Navy son is relocating. He's, he's got orders uh, to uh, serve in San Diego. And uh, so they're coming out to California. They're actually there now. They just drove across the country. It's kind of like this, taking the Santa Fe Trail with a Conestoga wagon. You know, it took them forever to get across the country. But anyway... <clears throat> Our kids, we're very grateful for our family, and, um, and we're grateful that uh, Marilyn's sister and brother-in-law moved to Saddlebrook from Oregon, where he was freezing his tail off, and, uh, and they, they moved here. They've been here just a little better than a year, and they were in Escondido. My wife's from Escondido, California, and so my sister-in-law's here this morning. Hello, Annie. And uh, we stayed overnight. So James didn't have to get us a hotel or something like that. So, um, so yeah, I, we, we came down here when I was 20, uh, we were 28, and we had two children, three and one, and we drove down actually from, for those of you who know the Phoenix area, from Cactus, at, uh, Cactus Road and 43rd Avenue, like northwest of Metro Center. And we drove down here every weekend for a year, and then we went back to help the church in Phoenix. We brought, I got a pastor to come down, James Taylor, Jim Taylor. Um, he's a really a good guitarist. Um, actually not, it was a different James Taylor. Um, and um, if you weren't in the church at that time, you really missed some great concerts. Anyway, uh, and then uh, Bob came down and, and uh, was a pastor here, and he relocated the church. We had, we had located up by the water tower. We bought a house right next to the water tower and graded it for parking. And uh, so anyway, we went back to Phoenix, and then we started uh, a church in Mesa. And, so, and then for, for two years, I drove from northwest Phoenix to Mesa. And, um, and then God said, okay, you can move now. And uh, we didn't move here. We thought, we thought about moving here, and we looked for homes, but it just, you know, just in the, in the ways of God. But it's just great to come and be a part of this because, um, and, and I tell people proudly about this church and, and what each of the pastors has done uniquely. And I think James has done a great job taking this church into this next season. And you, amen. James and Shauna. You know, how to be a pastor, no one knows, but you kind of learn one day at a time, and then everything you've learned doesn't work. And... Uh, I was 25 years, and I just decided, you know, I, I know 
uh, I, I, I've done everything I can for this church. I, I was difficult time for me just emotionally. It had been 25 years, and I was, I was tired, and, and uh, we just, I just knew I, I needed to make a change, and, and uh, the church needed new leadership, and we had a really great transition there. And it's now, my former church is now Hillsong Phoenix, if you've heard of Hillsong. And uh, it's, uh, my, my former campus is, is just buzzing. You know, it's just fantastic, this, all the stuff that's going on there. And, and uh, so I decided, as you get older, you look back and you think, what did, you, what did I do? And I decided what I did is I built a beautiful church for Hillsong. <laughs> so anyway, here I am. The rumor, by the way, this is really funny. Terry Crist was my successor. He had a church in Scottsdale. They, they, they merged the two churches, in, and uh, the rumor was going around that I sold the church to Terry Crist. I wish. Okay. What I did is I left him with millions of dollars of debt. So that's pretty much up. Uh, that's pretty much it for the day. And uh, you just close in prayer. We'll be getting out of here early. All right. The only thing that's uh, better than a better sermon is for church to end early. That's, that's better. My wife and I sometimes, we, now we don't really have a single church we go to. We go to a number of churches. I've preached in a bunch of churches in Phoenix. And so we, we actually ask the question, should we go to church today? And sometimes I say no. And then, and then with the second question is, where should we go to church? And I say, you decide. You know. So anyway... I'm sure you really want to know all of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and this service and our opportunity now, Lord, to serve you and to do well by you. And I, I just pray we're going to talk about things, God, you know we're going to talk about. And I just pray that people's hearts and minds will be open and uh, we will all be enriched and encouraged uh, by your word and by your presence here in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're talking about the epistle of James, and I put that in parenthesis in your notes, a letter. An epistle is a, a letter, an epistle from an apostle is a letter from a man of God who doesn't, de doesn't deserve to be a man of God. Uh, and we don't really know exactly who wrote this letter, but we, we, we know that it was probably written very early in the history of the church, that this may have been, James may have been the very first book that was written in the New Testament age. It ends up toward the end of the New Testament, James, Jude, uh, James, First uh, John, Second John, Third John, Jude, and the Revelation. Um, it ends up toward the end of the Bible, but it's probably the oldest book in the New Testament. The oldest book in the Old Testament is Job, uh, which answers the age-old, unanswerable question, why do good things happen, why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, James is, is kind of, in some ways, has the same message. And we're going to talk about the purpose of difficulty and why, why difficulty happens and what we can learn from it. Um, the author of James identifies himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is writing to, a quote, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. That's in James 1.1. The epistle is traditionally attributed to James, the brother of Jesus, or also known as, the, or as James the Just. And the audience is generally considered to be Jewish Christians who were dispersed outside of Palestine. The early church was predominantly Jewish, and it became, it became a real controversy when Gentiles began 
to become Christians, and they weren't circumcised, and they hadn't practiced Jewish uh, traditions, and there, there was a real clash. And so James was written very early in the church, before I think a lot of that clash had begun to surface. Uh, Martin Luther, and I, I want to talk about this because it helps us understand the book of James. The book of James is the oldest book in the New Testament. It doesn't feel like the other books in the New Testament. And Martin Luther, uh, who is the great reformer, called James an epistle of straw. And he said, because the gospel is not taught in James. And Martin Luther, uh, he's the one who really launched the Protestant Ref uh, Reformation, the, the, the beginning of all the churches that now uh, are not Catholic. There are so many denominations. There are an estimated 450 Pentecostal denominations alone. And the Protestant Reformation basically said, and there were other reformers that came before Luther, but he was just in the right place in the right time. And, uh, and <clears throat> the Reformation was about uh, really a, a revolt against many of the practices of the Catholic Church, the complexity of all the religion in the Catholic Church, and, and uh, really corruption in the church as well. And Luther, Luther was a scholar. He, he taught in a seminary. He was a doctor. He actually translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek. I mean, he was, he, was a, he was a Bible scholar. He translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into German. And then it was published. You've heard of the Gutenberg Bible. That was actually German uh, production, but it was all in Latin. Nobody had Bibles in their language. In fact, the official position of the church at that time was that if we let people read the Bible, uh, it will destroy the church. That was the position of the Catholic Church at that time. And fortunately now, they're encouraging their people to read the Bible. But uh, so Martin Luther, he, he, he objected to a lot of things. He it had 95 objections. Protests, that's why we're called Protestants, okay? And he nailed 95 protests to the front door of his church in Germany, and that launched the Protestant Reformation and a division between Catholicism and Protestantism. And the one thing that happened to Luther, <clears throat> as, as important as anything, is he was reading Paul in, in uh, Romans and Galatians, and he saw this verse, the just shall live by faith. And a light went on. We're not only saved by faith, but we live by faith. Because even after we become Christians, we're not really perfect. How many of you have discovered that? <laughs> what kind of people do you have here in this church, James? That's why I'm here, to get them all right with God. We need holy people. Um, and you're full of holes. So, <clears throat> so anyway, Luther read this verse, the just shall live by faith. And it's, well, not, not only are we saved by faith, but we're kept saved by, by faith. And it's not about our righteousness, but about the righteousness of Jesus that's given to us as a free gift. All right, so um, Luther called this an epistle of straw, quote, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. It is one of Luther's most quoted statements, what did he mean? His point is this. The essential message of the New Testament is that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. We wouldn't know this if we only had the letter of James and not the writings of Paul. If we just had James, we would have a Christian religion. But because we have the writings of Paul and other things that Jesus said, for example, about being born again, 
we have an understanding of salvation. And what James writes is something that comes out of salvation. It's not what leads to salvation or helps you keep your salvation. And I'll show you why James is controversial. If you look here at James chapter 1, there are three little statements in James that summarizes the whole message of the book. Let's look at these. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So if you don't show up for this work day in a couple weeks, I'm here to tell you, your future destiny is at risk. All right, see, I mean, that's easy to go there, right? All right, so faith by itself, is, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Next one. Faith without deeds is useless. Anybody feel bad yet? Let's look at the next one. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's what James says. And Paul says just the opposite. Look what Paul says. He says in Romans chapter 1, uh, but, and this is sort of my paraphrase with some notes, but you got the verse there if you want to look at it for yourself later. Paul with my paraphrasing notes, he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been made known to us apart from the law. That would be a religious works, the Old Testament, human effort, doing good things. And yet the law and the prophets, the Old Testament books, bear witness to this, that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. It's not just salvation that's for those who believe. It's the righteousness of God that's given to us. So this is our firm conviction that a person is justified, made right with God by faith, apart from the works of the law. This is exactly the opposite of what James wrote, right? And so how do Bible scholars deal with this? Well, first of all, people say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. So what? You contradict yourself. How many of you have contradicted yourself? You haven't always lived a real consistent life. You've been a hypocrite once in a while. Um, or just is it like maybe yesterday. Um, <clears throat> you've quoted Bible verses to your children that you haven't even lived yourself. You know, um, And so the Bible, I never say that the Bible uh, uh, d- contradicts itself. I like to say that the Bible is filled with ambiguities. Uh, things that we can't explain. And I like that, quite frankly, because... That's the way human life is. And so the Bible is, is real, it's in nimble. Uh, God's word speaks to us in every situation. There's a Bible verse for everything. And sometimes those two Bible verses don't line up with each other, but one of the two lines up with you. Uh, it even says in scripture that the Bible, uh, the word of God is like a two-edged sword. You know, it cuts two ways. And so the Bible sort of balances itself out by sometimes saying contradictory things. So we have Paul and James saying things that are completely opposite. So how do, how do Bible teachers understand this contradiction between James and Paul? And uh, I'm reading, I think this might be in your notes. The focus of James is not on the person and work of Jesus Christ like Paul in Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. James' short letter is a call to Christian action. So when James says in a couple weeks we're not going to have church and we're going to serve in the community, that's a call to action. If you are a believer, this is what should come out of your life if you've forgotten. And we need to be reminded sometimes every single day. So 
James' short letter is a call to Christian action to living out the gospel that we profess, not just believing it. The Apostle Paul agrees with James when he writes this. Here, you'll see the, 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 con, the contrast here, not the contradiction, but the contrast. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Why? Because God is at work within you both to will and to do his good pleasure. See? So God's at work within you. You have the nature, you've been born again, you have the nature of Christ. But don't just sit in church like a dummy. Work it out. And it's not because God's going to love you less if you don't. It's because God wants you to do something with your life to serve him. <clears throat> How many of you... Marilyn has heard me say this, I don't know how many dozen times, uh, but this is one of my important questions for Christians. How many of you have raised children, are raising children, or have seen children? <clears throat> Did you ever tell your children what to do and what not to do? You ever do that? Why do you do that? You tell, the, you, know, you tell your children what to do and what not to do. When the neighbor's children misbehave, you call the police. <laughs> so I love to ask these questions. How many of you have raised children or are raising children? How many of you love your children? How many of you love your children more than your neighbor's children? How many of you love your children more than the neighbor's children, even though the neighbors have much better children? <laughs> What's wrong with you? You should only love your children if they're behaving and doing what you say. Why do you love them? Because they're my children. Sometimes I don't like them, but I love them. And this really helps us understand the love of God. His love isn't dependent on us doing good things or not doing bad things. His love is, is, is a gift to us. And uh, so Paul is saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is in you. And uh, this is good for you. And he's, he's given us his word, okay, to help us know how to live life well. I, I call it the owner's manual. You know, he, he made us, and this is the owner's manual. If you, we just bought a Hyundai, and I got an owner's manual. It's as thick as the Bible. I don't read it until something doesn't work. Then I read it. Why is that happening? That's what somebody told me after the service. I thought that was great, James. He said, that is so helpful. The Bible is like an owner's manual, and we don't read the owner's manual until we're in trouble. And so God, you know, God's given us this book as an owner's manual because he's created us, and he's our owner, and it's not so we'll stay close to him so that he'll be happy and he won't be mad at us. It's because he knows what's best. Just like you parents, you dummy parents actually know better than your more dummy children. Anybody want to say amen? And that's just, that's my paraphrase of the Bible where it says, if you know how to give, if you fathers, you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father not give good gifts to you? See? If we as earthly fathers know how to discipline our children, how much more will not the heavenly father discipline us? Those, those are right from the Bible. See, So <clears throat> Paul is saying the same thing. And James, now, now let me get a little theological on you here. Um, <clears throat> there are two great theological terms. 
Justification and sanctification. Uh, I want you to say those two words, okay? What are the two words? Justification, sanctification. These are the two aspects of the Christian life. Being born again, getting the nature of Jesus, getting a new nature, you're justified, you are made perfect, and then working it out, the process of working it out. So justification, okay, we are declared holy. We ain't holy. We come before God with filthy garments, and God says, take those garments away and give him a new, a new outfit that's spotless. And um, so I, I love this, this really old hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His blood to save me, his blood to make me perfect. I mean, his, his righteousness to make me perfect. So a justification, we're declared holy. It's like a, it's a court of law term. It's a legal term. It's as if we're in court for our sins, but God the judge says, let this person go free because my son's sacrifice for him, for her, allows me to forgive them. I will now take their sins away from them as far as the east is from the west. I declare them not guilty, innocent. And you go free, and the judge kills the lawyer. Is that right? Yeah, Jesus is the lawyer, and he's the one who intercedes for us, and, and his death lets us go free. Okay? That's justification. There's no logic. It's not something you feel. You just have to know that what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus is true. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Jews, the Israelites, had a practice for that. It's called the scapegoat, where they would lay their, the priest would lay his hands heavy on the head of the goat, give him a kick in the rear, send him out in the wilderness to die. And that was a picture of the, the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. All right? So... <clears throat> This last week, I, I had a conversation with a couple Mormons, and uh, I think the Mormons are wonderful people. But the sanctification, justification and sanctification, I don't think they really understand this. So uh, I was talking to them about how people are admitted to the temple, and they've got like 12 questions. And the last, and the temple is like everybody wears white clothing, it's quiet music, it's restful, it's like God's presence is there. And so they have to qualify. And the last question they ask is, do you feel worthy of the temple? Do you feel worthy? Who could ever say, I feel worthy? Unless it's about all your, your record of good behavior. Feel worthy. The Bible says that Jesus, uh, that, that he's provided a way for us behind the veil into the holiest place of all, the presence of God in the temple, that we can come in with, without an evil conscience. We can go right into the presence of God. Do you feel worthy of that? No. I never feel worthy enough. 
But it's not about me feeling worthy. It's whether or not I'm actually one of his children. Some of you have children. They're not worthy of you. And they don't think it. They don't think that's true. They think you're not worthy of them. You know? I deserve better parents. You know? And, and, but, but, you know, we go, I'm not worthy. And, and um, I love, we sang this line. I am, today we sang this line. I'm, I took notes. I hope you're taking notes. I took notes on the worship. I am loved. I am made pure. Okay? Look what Paul says, or what the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 10, 14, this to me is one of, my abs- one of my top five verses. For by one sacrifice, he has made us, what? Perfect for how long? Perfect forever. Do you look perfect? No. Do you behave perfectly? No. But from God's perspective, because you have the nature of his son in you, Jesus' perfect righteousness, you are Perfect. Forever. The rest of you had that down. A couple people really appreciated that last comment. Okay. Perfect for you. But this is for those who are being made holy. That's sanctification. So it's justification and sanctification. Being made holy is a process where you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So uh, justification is being declared holy. Sanctification is the lifelong process of being made holy. And uh, James talks about what it means to be made holy in the first chapter. (laughs) By troubles and tribulations. (laughs) To purge us, basically, of our carnal tendencies. Okay? So that's why you discipline your children, okay? So they can be more holy. Right? Okay, so they can be better people. Um, Sanctification is not working out your salvation. Uh, I'm sorry, is working out your salvation, not working on it or for it. That's a big difference. Okay? The focus of James is working out your salvation with fear and trembling, not because you're afraid God will stop loving you, but because you know your salvation is so wonderful and important. And the owner's manual tells you the way to go. Jesus said... Uh, narrow, it says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Lots of options out there for you to self-destruct. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. Oh, I don't want to go through there. That sounds like legalistic. That sounds religious. But that's what the owner's manual is about. You know, you got to change the oil. Why? All right, so... um, Now I'm going to talk about trials and temptations. This is the way you get closer to God. (laughs) Okay, let's look at James chapter 1, okay? James chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, greetings, consider it pure joy. Pure joy. I'll tell you what pure joy is, watching the Diamondbacks win the World Series. Watching the Cardinals win at least one more game this year. I mean, if they only win more, one more game, people across Maricopa County and all the way down to Tucson are going to be leaping for joy. When Mexico, I think when they beat Germany, the whole country went crazy. And there, there were actually, there was a minor earthquake 
that was detected from all the people in Mexico City jumping up and down with pure joy that they won one game in the World Cup. Did you hear about that? That's pure joy. Pure joy. Cold Stone Creamery. You know. When your children have children, pure joy. Because you don't have to do anything. <laughs> I mean, there are things we've all had pure joy, right? And James says, count it, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. No one said amen. Okay, so can you think of any trouble in this life that's not included in this statement? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay? And so, because why? Because why? Because James chapter 1 verse 4 says... Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Oh, man. Mature and complete. Now, here are options to mature and complete. A blubbering idiot. Fearful and anxious. Angry and bitter. So when things go wrong, you have those options. Praise the Lord. Um, how many of you have been through something and you've said, this feels like hell? Okay. If, you, if you want to water the, the thorns of hell, be a blood, blubbering idiot, fear, be fear, fearful and ang anxious, be angry and bitter. You know, you don't, have to, you don't have to wait till you die to go to hell. You can just, you can have hell in your life by the way you respond to whatever happens to you. I mean, it's bad enough. The stuff that happens to us, it's bad enough. But we make it worse. So imagine where you come to a place in life where you actually live totally trusting God. You're mature and complete. There's something so wonderfully liberating about this. Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation. But, what do you say? Be, be of good cheer. That's kind of like pure joy. Be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. In the world, you'll have tribulation. That's one of the promises that never ends up in a promise box. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, rejoice, and be glad because I have overcome the world. You can find your happiness and your peace in another place. See? Now, I'm going to tell you, is this easy? No. Have I had meltdowns? Yes. Countless meltdowns about everything from people in my life to my computer. <laughs> Just ask my wife. She lives with my meltdowns. So I, I have not mastered this message, but I'm telling you that you should. <laughs> All right. Be of good cheer, for I will overcome the world. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes life feels like hell. 
but I don't want to live there. I don't have to live there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, verse 10. Paul says, that is why for Christ's sake, say it with me, I delight. You know what? I delight. This is fun. No, it's not fun. And, and James doesn't say feel joyful when you meet, various, meet with various trials. He says, count it all joy. Consider it joy. And so Paul says, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. And, and what else? In what? Insults. In what? Hardships. In what? Persecutions. In what? In case we forgot something, we'll put in the word difficulties. All right? You know, I delight. When was the last time any of you obeyed the scripture? I, this is great. This is the worst week of my life. Praise the Lord, you know. I mean... Think about this. James is either James and Paul are either onto something or they're on something. <laughs> because the people humans don't think this way. But God is giving us a way out, an exodus from slavery in Egypt. See? He's giving you a way out. So um, that's for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness. Why? For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. What does he mean by that? He means that when I run out of my own options, I have to trust in God, and that's the best and only option for me. So, in other words, I desperately need to come to that place where I shout to the heavens, the Lord is my strength. Let's say that together. The Lord is my strength. Let's say it again. The Lord is my strength. Now, you don't have to say that. You don't have to believe that. You don't have to put anything like that I'm talking about into practice. But I can promise you, you, can, you will make yourself miserable to the extent that you stay in that darkness. Or I can say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Um, uh, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Yeah. Or you can be miserable. <laughs> Psalm 28. Let's read this together. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. He helps me. My heart leaps for joy. And with my song, I praise him. I love this in, in the J.B. Phillips. He summarizes this really well in his paraphrase of the New Testament. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers and sisters, don't resent them as intruders. Welcome them as friends. <laughs> Is that wonderful? Is that painful? <laughs> so how, how many of you guys uh, have gone through basic training? Uh, some of you, any women? We got any women that went through basic training? Okay. Now why would you do that? Why would they do that to you? 
because they don't like you. That's why they don't like you. Okay? They tell you how worthless you are. Why, why would you go through that? My son, Matt, he's in the Navy. He's been through that. Uh, his first letter to us, he, he wrote back, Today I woke up in hell, and they told me it was Navy boot camp. His mother uh, wanted to send him cookies, like it was a youth camp. And I, and I said, don't do that. And I told that story in my church, and a guy, a, a brother, uh, a black brother, he's one of my ushers, you know, he said, when I went to, I went to boot, camp, boot camp, my mother sent me cookies. And my drill sergeant made me eat the whole, the whole box of them at once, and then I had to do push-ups. You know, so... You know, I mean, life, this is the way life is. Why does anybody play football? I have a friend who's got a T-shirt that says, No pain, no pain. <laughs> it says, Let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed. And you will find you have become men and women of mature character with the right sort of independence. It's so powerful. It's, it's a way of saying life around me is not going to shape me. God is going to shape me when life around me happens in all of its joy and sadness. So a little help from above. So is there anything specifically that you can do when trouble comes your way? James chapter 5 verse 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, wisdom does not mean, why is this happening to me? Okay, uh, if you've raised kids, or you, you know, you're raising kids, or you've seen kids, and you tell them what to do or what not to do, what is their frequent, if not, Regular, why, okay? They're born with that. That's the first word they learn, why. Wow, 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 why. Okay? It's the first, first question. And you are a godly man, a godly woman, and so you sit down and you explain to them why this happened. And you, you quote Bible verses. And after your, you know, eight-minute homily, what do they say? But why? Right? And you, you feel like you're going to lose your mind. And the fact is that when we explain things to people, it doesn't help their soul. So you can lose someone, a family member. Maybe some of you have lost a child or there's been a sudden death in your family or an automobile accident. And you say, why? Why did this happen? And you will never get past the pain with an answer to that question. Um, so why Mexico Beach? in the eye of the hurricane. Why Mexico Beach? Why, Beach? Why not Fort Lauderdale or, or Pensacola? Why, why Mexico Beach? Why those people? Um, why, why did this happen? Why the World Trade Center in New York? Why 3,000 people? Why those people? Were you there? Did you escape death? Why? Who exactly was responsible for this? Why, why mom and dad have an invalid child? 
I had a couple in our church that had an, inf- in, uh, an invalid child, really a genetic freak. Six months early, she went in, Beth went into, into, uh, she went into labor, and she was so overwhelmed that she asked me to come and pray with her. And I went to the hospital. Her husband wasn't there. Her, she had not told her mother and dad that she had had a baby because this baby was just such a, a dysfunctional, weird baby. Bobby lived for two years. And the first thing Beth asked me when I walked to her bed at the other side of the hospital room, she was in the bed by the window. Before I ever got to her bed, she, st- she asked me, did this happen because of something I did? Okay. So you can't answer those questions. Uh, even if we have really good answers to the questions, no explanation ever heals the wounds of loss. Answers to the why questions touch our minds, but not our hearts. So what wisdom does mean, what do I do now? Where do I go with this? You know, if you're faced with all kinds of stuff and you lack wisdom, in the Bible, wisdom never means like theology or doctrine or ideas. Uh, Wisdom in the Bible means skill. Life skill, how do I, what do I do next? Okay, so wisdom in the Bible never, is never about theology or philosophy, uh, careful explanations about why this or that happened. Wisdom in the Bible is about real life skills. Have you ever heard this verse? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. So you could translate the fear of the Lord is the beginning of how to live life, how to do life, how to do marriage, how to do work, how to raise children. The fear of the Lord is the starting point of wisdom for life. Um, James chapter 1 verse 6 says this, but when you ask for wisdom, life skills, you must believe and not doubt Uh, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, and that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Feel guilty? But he says you must believe. You must believe and not doubt. And this is where faith comes in, raw faith, resolve, facing the future instead of staying stuck in the quicksand of what just happened. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of my faith, for the joy that, that what? The joy set before him. He what? Endured the cross, scorning the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And now, just to wrap this up with a few steps. How to confront the darkness around you and in you. Step one, don't blame God. Say that. Don't blame God. James says in verse one, when tempted, when tested, that's really the same word that's used in the first couple verses. He's not talking about just evil here, just tempted or tested. 
no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You know, you can blame God if you want. God won't strike you with lightning. For thousands of years, God has been loving people who don't love him or even like him or don't even believe or care if he exists. But when you blame God or others or your circumstances, you will never find the peace that you're so desperately looking for. Step number two, yeah, it's really all about me. James says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, I, I really dislike this translation, and many of the other translations don't say evil desire, because this implies that your desires, your emotions, your feelings are inherently evil. They're not evil. They are what God has given you. Human emotion is wonderful. The Bible even says, uh, be, be angry, but don't sin. It's what you do with those human emotions. Okay, so uh, in the ESV it says each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay. Um, it's really a neutral word. In fact, it can be a very positive word. Jesus used the same Greek term at the Last Supper when he said to his disciples, I have earnestly and intensely desired to eat this Passover with you. Jesus was a man of emotion. And uh, I, I, love, I love to say this. Your passions, your anger, your sadness, your sexuality, to name a few, are not sinful. It's what you do with them. Jesus didn't die to deliver you from your emotions, from your humanity, to take away our feelings, to turn us into emotional zombies. He died to deliver your humanity from the power of sin. Our deep feelings and emotions are gifts from God. But then what happens when we give in to our feelings? Step three, say no to sin before it becomes your very own road to ruin. James says this, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. I think that is so interesting. The, the narrow gate, the wide gate. And my paraphrase of this is, when my selfish will has intercourse with my God-given passions, it gives birth to sin. And when I do this over and over, it creates patterns of dark behaviors which lead to death. And that's where some of you are. You, you have, in your reaction to things that happened in your past, maybe even before you became a Christian, you have established patterns of response. And, and these patterns, they, they hold you in a prison. And the patterns are because we've done the wrong thing over and over, or we've responded the wrong way over and over, and we can't get out of it. And it leads to the death of something in you, your hope, your faith, your life, relationships. And, and this James is warning us up front, when you give in to what the Word of God says, don't give in to that. And you give in to it again and again and again. You're just headed for hell. And I don't mean when you die. I mean before you ever get to the end of your life. So step four is stay close to God. Is that stupidly simple stay close to God who loves you 
and wants you to receive his very best. And I love the way James has just sort of tied all this together. He says in the very last passage here at the end of this chapter, and this is from the message, so my very dear friends, don't get thrown off course. Every desirable and beneficial gift comes out of heaven. And the gifts are rivers of light cascading down from the Father of light. There's nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, nothing fickle. He brought us to life using the true word, showing us off as the crown of all his creatures. Is that great? This is the hope that we have. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Would you stand for just a moment? Would you lift your hands and would you say this prayer to God? Just repeat this after me. Heavenly Father, sometimes I'm a big dummy. And sometimes I sin. And uh, my emotions get the best of me. But Jesus, I want me, I, I want you to give me your best in every moment. I need to trust you. Lord, you are my strength in all of the challenges of life. I have no other option. I have to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This has been a message from Living Word Chapel. We hope that you've been blessed by it. Make sure you check out lwcoracle.org for more information.